In a world filled with sharks, bears, and killer bees, one man is brave enough to stay indoors to bring you the latest in gaming, movie, and pop culture news. That man is Tom Awesome, and this is the Outside is Overrated podcast. Hello and welcome to Outside is Overrated, a podcast about gaming and nerd pop culture. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm your host, Tom Sidlatik, and today we are going back to the table for a board game show chock full of monsters and devious traps. We'll be breaking down a pair of D&D board games, The Temple of Elemental Evil and Waterdeep, Temple of the Mad Mage. Was The Temple of the Mad Mage? Did I screw up the title of this game? Dungeon Dungeon of the Mad Mage. Well, it's recorded now, so we'll just call it The Temple of the Mad Mage. D&D Temple Games. (laughs) Temple Gate. If you're still listening, we'll also discuss the documentary, Eye of the Beholder. Joining me for the discussion today are Hobbybox, Joe Burns. hey And Dr. C, Casey Aline. What's going on, everybody? Would you like to tell the story of why we call you Dr. C? Um, it's got something to do with female anatomy. <laughs> I thought you were going to come up I'm with a, something I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave it at that. As a cover. <laughs> I really need to make that into a ringtone. Well, welcome back to the show, guys. Casey, you've been busy coaching your kids' football team, Mr. Athletic Guy, out of the entire OIO crew. What kind of lessons are you teaching these young men? I teach them to crush their enemies, see them driven before you, and hear the lamentation of their women. Now, uh, given your character in Dragon's Dogma and that incredible impersonation... I think that you are a big fan of Arnold Schwarzenegger, and we have never discussed this. I, you know, it's Conan the Barbarian. It's a, it's a solid, solid flick. I've um, never one. seen Conan the Barbarian. I've seen it. It's been a long okay. time. Casey, I'm only going to watch one of these movies in my entire lifetime. <laughs> in my entire lifetime, should I watch Blade Runner or should I watch Conan the Barbarian? Holy crap, Blade Runner! I was going to say the correct answer is Predator. I've seen Predator. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah I saw Predator. Get to the Joppa. Get to the Joppa. But I watched it like two years ago. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah, I got to it. I mean, I watched The Breakfast Club for the first time like five years ago. So, I mean, it's never too late, Tom. It's never too late. It's never too late for a timeless classic like The Breakfast Club? Yeah, it is a timeless classic. It's, it's, it's a good coming-of-age story. I haven't watched that movie in like a decade, so I don't remember a lot about it. Yeah, I don't know. Is that the one with Ducky, or was that Pretty in Pink? That's Pretty in Pink, pink. I'm pretty sure. Oh. Emilio? He's in no. Breakfast Club. Yeah, the mighty oh, yeah, doctor is. himself. Yep. 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 Yeah. And Judd, whatever his last name is, not Apatow. Nelson, isn't it? Judd Nelson, there you go, yeah. yeah. Judd Nelson is f***ing harsh, dude. <laughs> Breakfast Club is a good one. I've censored myself like <laughs> ten times in our conversation so far, and you just... <laughs> You know, I was going to try so hard to show to you. I was going to try so hard. I made it two minutes and 45 seconds before I dropped the first that bomb. It was going to be a great show. <laughs> well, seriously, Casey, like, uh, what level of the coach are you? Are you the head coach of your kid's team, or are you, like, the third assistant to the no, special teams coach? I'm the defensive coordinator, so I'm in charge of, of everything defense. And this year, uh, it got a lot more complicated. Um, it would have been last year, but COVID shut the whole season down. But was last year going to be your first year as defensive coordinator? Nope, I've been defensive coordinator for, this will be like my fourth, well, technically third year, but it would have been fourth if we would have played last year. Um, but prior to this, it, it was a lot easier. Like you 
had to follow a lot more specific rules. You had to line up, head up on top of, of the offensive linemen. You couldn't blitz, you couldn't stunt, you couldn't do anything like that. Uh, this year, we can do everything. So they follow high school rules. So any, anything goes this year. So are you advancing in grades with your kid, or have you been the same grade all this time? Nope, I just advance with them the whole time. Why are you laughing? That was a legitimate question. Well, I, I was legitimately, I wanted to say, uh, his kid actually hasn't moved on for grades in the last four years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I've been with him, I think, since fifth grade. So fifth, sixth, seventh, would have been seventh and then eighth grade. So, But uh, yeah, it's, it's it's a blast. They're a good group of kids. We have like 29 kids, and that's the hardest part is that obviously we only have 11 people on the field at one time. So trying to, trying to, Get them all out there is 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 a, is a challenge, but it's, yeah, that's almost it's three full squads for defense. Yeah, so pretty pretty impossible, um, and you just kind of have to do what, what you can to to make it work. And once you get to this age, sometimes it's gets into more winning is important versus playing time. And with with all the complications that come with it, you also have to, you know, if, if a kid's not ready to, to hit yet. It's almost you can't put them out there because it, it, it could be a liability because kids are getting big, the testosterone's starting to flow a little bit, and like we have one kid on our team who is six foot two, two hundred and I think he said two hundred and sixty pounds. Full beard. Get out of here. As, a, as an eighth grader, and the kid is just a monster. So if if that kid is going up against somebody who doesn't want to hit, they're gonna get flat out murdered. And that fourteen years old. Yeah. He plays. Um, he didn't. This is our first year with with us, and I'm like jaw to the ground when this kid's on the field because he actually plays like I didn't even know this existed but he tries plays uh, traveling football so he plays for a team called uh, the Minnesota Purple Rain and um, our like first week of practice he actually missed it because he was traveling with his team down to Texas and playing teams with Texas and they played teams from Florida so all I can picture is Jason Momoa uh, yes but with acne because he's a teenager (laughs) oh my god that's nuts he's a monster no, we grew up, like you said, in small-town Minnesota. When you played high school football, the technology on the sideline was like a clipboard, right? Mr. B had a clipboard, and that was it. What is the technology like now in your school district? Um, I mean, I'm still kind of old school. I carry a binder, so I've advanced from a clipboard to, to a binder. Dude, you love your binders. I play fantasy football <laughs> with you. You bring a binder of individual defensive players that will blow your freaking mind. Yep, and uh, I... I take it right into this too. I'm serious about about my coaching, and uh, you're serious uh, about everything. You don't do anything halfway. Like <laughs> once you set that big old brain onto something, like you just demolish it. And, and I hope that the kids that I'm coaching can grasp onto that and take some of what I know and what I've given them and put it on the field and kick some. Brinzi, I swear we'll let you talk in a minute. But no, Casey, now you're a pretty successful guy in your own professional career. Where does coaching fit into this? Like, are you trying to work your way up the... Is this a stepping stone for you? Are you, like, going to go back and be the head football coach of Mora High School and then move on to uh, some D3 college and try to work your way up? So what's what's happening here? No, this was this is just because Chase, my middle son, plays football, and I love football, uh, and there was an opportunity to help out with the team. And uh, I've just kind of worked my way up. Like, that first year in fifth grade, I was basically just a helper. And then, like the coach saw that I could help kind of a little bit more and then um so like sixth grade I started as the defensive coordinator and then I've been that ever ever since but um 
I'm definitely not uh, not going to take it any anywhere after after this. No, and this this actually might be my last year because next year in ninth grade the high school takes over and they hire their own coaches. So unless they need me in some sort of assistant capacity, this this could very well be my last year of coaching, and that will make me very sad. Bill Belichick, watch out! He's coming for you. <laughs> Last question. I imagine that the head coach has some sort of athletic and probably football background. If you two stepped into an octagon, now you're not an overly aggressive guy physically, at least that I've like witnessed in our personal life, but like you two step into an octagon, who's going to come out on top, Casey? Uh, I would, but only like because I'm 10 years younger than him at this moment. So like both of us in our prime, it would probably be a pretty, pretty good match. But I think right now I would definitely, definitely be able to take it. Well, and you know what like points to hit. Like, you could probably just drop him, <laughs> get him in, like, here and here, and then he's just, like, on the ground. He's like, whoa, I'm drooling. Yeah, yeah broken death grip, right? Body triangle. Or, yeah, some sort of <laughs> well, speaking of guys in their primes, Bernsey, what would happen if you stepped into the octagon with Casey? I mean, I'm a lover, not a fighter. So I'd just start making out with him, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, Bernsey, I know you've been streaming a lot. What is new at twitch.tv slash hobbyboxburns? Yeah, uh, so basically at like right after right after we recorded last time and right the day that we started playing these board games, uh, I had my one year anniversary stream where I streamed for twelve hours on Twitch and played a lot of different things. And uh, that was a lot of fun, had a had a good time, and now uh, recently I've been playing Sui Code in two which we talked about on the last podcast a little bit, and uh, the original Final Fantasy on NES, which is a very old-school version of the game, and it's it's very methodical, going to be lots of grinding. We'll see if I make it through it. <laughs> I mean, you just beat this game like two years ago on this podcast on Vita playing the PlayStation Remastered. Like, why are you doing this, Burns? Why are you going back to Final Fantasy again? Yeah, because I really want to see where it like how it actually played when it came out in order to be able to balance you know what that version is like and then also I've been I've picked up the pixel remasters that they came out with and uh, those actually have a lot of quality of life changes so like so why aren't you playing those because I want to see where it comes from first and then be able to compare that because that's that's so that's all what the that's what the RPG archaeology is all about. Now, seeing where it started and, and how they've changed it and what was what was the actual design intent that they wanted to keep and what are the things that they just didn't figure out then that they want to get rid of right now. I could just picture you flailing your weapon above foes that have already fallen, just oh, yeah. getting enraged. It's happened. Uh, I haven't gotten really enraged about that. I, I have gotten enraged about the marsh cave, though. <laughs> because I have definitely wiped in there like three times now, and so I'm trying to grind myself up uh, before I stream again so that I can hopefully make it through there without losing everybody because there's some cheap fights after you get through the boss of that to try to get back out where they can just paralyze you and then they just bam, 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 bam. And maybe you wake up, maybe you don't. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's a brutal game, that's for sure. You know, I just beat that game for the first time this year. Yeah. I've gotten a good chunk of the way through it when we played it for the podcast a couple years ago and I'm like, I'm going to try to finish some Final Fantasies this year. And, and would you say that you're glad that you finished it um, or would you rather spend that time on something else? 
Uh, the way I feel right now today, I would like to take all the time I've ever put into every crappy game, including all the old Final Fantasies and Riverbond and Human Fall Flat and every bad game I've ever played in my life and put it all into The Witcher 3. That's how I feel right now. Oh, wow. You're, you're, you're loving The Witcher, huh? I'm like an hour and a half in, and I'm like having the time of my life. Um, having the time of my life. And he's staring at Geralt in a bathtub. And I've never felt this way before. <laughs> and I swear. My sweatpants are tighter. Because <laughs> Sorry. I love it when you sing. You bring such life to the show. So uh, I've been doing a lot of Witcher stuff to prepare for our Witcher show that's coming up in a couple of months. I read The Last Wish. I'm reading The uh, Sword of Destiny. Is that mm-hmm. the short story collection? I read the first actual novel. And I'll say this for the early Witcher stuff. Like, cripes, that timeline is all over the place. Like, he meets Yennefer in The Last Wish. And they something's happened between them in... Uh, the Sword of Destiny, which comes before the first novel, but then the first novel is largely her with Siri, and it's like, oh my god, like I just, just tell me what happens in a chronological order, A to B to C to D, okay? Like, it's like a Quentin Tarantino movie. It's sounds yes. like a Quentin Tarantino movie, but it's really good. I didn't enjoy, especially the last wish, the first time I read it, but having more familiarity with Geralt and like the Witcher universe, going back to it, I really enjoyed it the second time, and. Uh, we're diving into the show soon, so we're going to have so much to talk about on that show yeah. in November. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. And uh, another real quick aside, I played some Monster Hunter Generations Ultimate on Switch. It's fun. It's Monster, Monster Hunter on the Switch. Like, uh, one of the big things that stands out from the PS5 is there's all these small little areas with a little loading screen in between. And, like, if you see the monster, you have to throw a paintball at them to mark them on your map. Mm. Yeah. I, uh, I played for about three hours. I fought one monster and just got my butt kicked. <laughs> so a really hard ramp up. I've been gathering a lot of herbs. I'm like, ooh, I'm going to get some more uh, mushrooms this time, and then I'm going to make a, I'm gonna make a uh, bomb, and then I'm going to get a trap ready, and then that monster's going to get it. And then I'm going to carve some sweet bones, and then I'm going to make the khakis, and then I'm going to get the chicks. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of grinding. It is. Yeah. Oh, man, Monster Hunter is yeah. just like an endless grind. Guess you're not just big I've Monster never, Hunter guys. I've never played a Monster Hunter game. <laughs> Neither did I until Monster Hunter World. I uh, I can't remember if it's still on Game Pass or not, but it is super fun. Like, <laughs> Monster Hunter World really got its hooks in, man. And I, I don't know how much time I sunk into it, but it was my most played game of, what was it, two years ago we were playing that? Two or three. Yeah, I think it was maybe three. 2018 sounds about right. Yeah, that sounds right. Phoenix asked me, when do you want to play Monster Hunter? And I said, honey, I want to play Monster Hunter every second of every day. <laughs> it's a good game. Uh, we're going to move on to our main topics here. But first, we would like to thank our sponsor, Premier Health. Check out their website at premierhealthmn.com. You can follow us on social. Email the show at overratedpod at gmail.com. Follow me at Tom Sidlachik, OIO on Twitter and Instagram. Follow Joey at HobbyBoxBurns on Twitter and twitch.tv slash HobbyBoxBurns and at Dr. Underscore Casey on Twitter. You can also follow the show at Facebook.com slash Outside is Overrated. Our first topic today is the board game Dungeons and Dragons, The Temple of Elemental Evil. This board game released in 2015. It was designed by Peter Lee and Ben Petrosor. Burnsy, are you familiar with either of those designers? Nope. Yeah, me neither, but you're more connected to that scene, so... Yes, nope, I'm not. We'll assume they're great. Yes. This game has a 7.4 rating on Board Game Geek. 
Dungeons & Dragons Temple of Elemental Evil is a cooperative dungeon crawler where you play through a variety of scenarios, battle monsters, find treasure, and grow more powerful. You play as one of five heroes, and there's a combination of powers that you get to bring into each scenario with you. There's a daily power, which is a powerful single-use ability. There are utility powers, which can only be used once unless you have something that refreshes them. They're not always combat-related. Sometimes they can uh, do other things with game mechanics. There are also basic powers, which is like your crossbow, your longsword, your basic melee and magic attacks. Those can be used every single turn. On a turn, you get to basically move and do a thing. So that other thing you can do could be fight a monster, or disarm a trap, or perform another action, or draw and resolve an encounter card. To prepare for this show, we played through three scenarios. We were ambushed and had to fight our way out of a dungeon. Then we had to dispatch a water elemental from deeper within the dungeon. And then the final scenario happened in town where doppelgangers were replacing townsfolk and had to be stopped. Was that right? Did we only do three or did we do four that night? We just did three. three. Yep. Well, let's start with the characters that we chose and what drew us to them. I was a dwarf cleric because the group needed some healing. Uh, I was the designated healer. That was my role. <laughs> Joey? Yeah, I, so I was the Sun Elf Wizard, and uh, the main reason why I picked that was that I don't usually play as, like, casters in D&D, or any, like, even most games, if, like, the default would be to pick someone melee or someone support, and so I figured that it would be fun to try something like that, and so, uh, so yeah, so that's why I rolled with the Sun Elf Wizard. And I did basically the complete opposite of that. I went right for that human fighter because I'm really drawn to that tanky hack-and-slash style of play. You certainly are. Yes, I am. Casey Smash. <laughs> oh, Except for in this game. Doctor, Casey Doctor, died a lot. Dr. C, does that stand for uh, Conan? Are you Dr. Conan? Dr. Conan. Yes, Dr. Colin. Dr. Colin. Okay, I got it. <laughs> Don't tease us, Casey. <laughs> so for each scenario, you can... I said so. Put a dollar in the jar. Good Joey, joke. I said I'd never say so again. So, I said so. So what? So I say so all the time. Yeah, we both say so all the yeah. time. There's, like, song about that, but I don't know it enough to be able to really say anything. Yeah, not like the theme from Dirty Dancing. No, no. Which is <laughs> <laughs> just always at the tip of your tongue. Definitely. When you're getting ready for one of the scenarios, you have some variety to your ability loadouts. So let's talk a little bit about the skills that we favored. For me, I'll start again because it was kind of boring. I just grabbed all the healing I could get my hands on. Uh, the basic abilities that I had access to in the first scenario were... Uh, like a melee ability where I could hit something that's on my tile, or a crossbow where I could hit something two tiles away, which is kind of neat because each tile has nine, or like it's a little grid of squares. And generally in a game like this, like your movement is one little square, or your attack is one little square, two little square. In this game, the tiles connect, and you can actually, some attacks will allow you to attack or be targeted from multiple tiles away. I thought that was kind of an interesting and unique mechanic in this. But uh, it didn't really play for me because I was either thumping dudes with my mates or uh, trying to heal Casey because he couldn't kill anything. It's very true, <laughs> unfortunately. The warrior or the fighter that could not kill anything. Um, and that's the, With the fighter, Like I didn't have as much variety. Everything was pretty much um, <coughs> forced you to play up close. So I was just really 
a, a damaged sponge, which I ended up ended up being, which as a tank, that's that's a good thing, I guess. But um, all my at will powers were weapons that only did one damage, with the exception of the great axe, and that was a plus one only if I was adjacent to somebody. Um, the daily powers were also reliant on being adjacent to monsters. One was a sweeping attack that did two damage to all adjacent monsters, and the other was a three damage to the target monster and one damage to all the other that were adjacent. So pretty, pretty similar. So, and then one of the utilities was called Daring Shout, where basically if, if any monsters within two tiles, I could pick random three monsters and I could pull them all adjacent to me. So that was, I just kind of tried to use that combination as much as I could to pull everybody to me and then hope to wipe them out. And then I rolled really bad and then I just got the crap beat out of me most of the time. Um, so yeah. that, that was my that was my my strategy, and I think it would have worked, but my rolling in this was was just awful. Yeah, your dice were ice cold. It was like playing Memoir Forty Four with you on my side. Well, how many, <laughs> how, honestly, how many? Like, thank God there wasn't any. Uh, uh, no, I can't even think of it. So, what's the opposite of crit? Um, one, oh, like we rolled miss. one yeah. critical misses. Like I rolled a one on a d twenty. I had to be six, seven times in both of our <laughs> campaigns, which. Should almost be impossible to do. I mean, thank God there weren't critical misses in this. Otherwise, I'd have been dead a whole lot. Yeah, and uh, I'll use that as an opportunity to take us down a quick aside. These games are based on Dungeons and & Dragons, and in Dungeons & Dragons, typically you'll fight with some sort of melee weapon. You'll roll a d20, and if you roll a 20, it's a critical hit, and you can do some damage. And each weapon will have its own specific amount of damage that it does. Like, you'll roll a d6 and add your strength to it. So you could do, like, potentially nine or more damage on an attack. In this game... Almost all basic attacks do one damage, so you having the ability to do two to multiple monsters or three to a single monster, those were, in scale, pretty powerful attacks. As my cleric, I can only do one damage unless I rolled a natural 20, in which case I get to do an extra point of damage. I just thought those were interesting differences from the, like, source material. Yeah, yeah, well, and so, like, the wizard's main ability was that I could spend a hit point to deal an extra damage if I hit on an attack, um, which I did only, I used once, but a lot of that was because in the first game when I had that like fresh in my head, the attacks I had, because at the start you it gives you sort of a guideline. These are the abilities that you should start with for your at will, your utility, and your daily abilities. And so I just rolled with that. But the problem I ran into is like Chill Touch, for instance, I think it was only like a plus five to your die roll to hit, which just felt like it didn't hit enough for it to be worthwhile. And so then I ended up swapping that out in subsequent games to get the plus seven damage ones. So it's like plus seven for my attack because it would do enough damage. Uh, and usually I would have some other ability that would come with it so I could stun if I hit with it. And it just better a chance at hitting because, you know, we were trying to get over like 12, 13, 14. And it's just really hard sometimes for that D20 to roll high enough to get over that. Well, it's iPhone. That's <laughs> Granted, if I would have been rolling good in the first place, it would have been much different. But like all my other, like the, the bigger attacks was just a plus six. And then one of the weapons that I could have had was a dagger, which was a plus six to, or plus 10 to your roll. So, like, because I was rolling so bad, I was kind of forced to take that plus 10, which was only one, one damage. Mm -hmm. So... It kind of hurt me, but at the same time, like, at least they give you that ability to kind of change cards up as you as you go on to different scenarios. So if you are rolling like crap, you're able to maybe add something that, that can help you out. 
So if I'm hearing this correctly, you're taking full responsibility for our first wipe in the first scenario because you couldn't hit anything <laughs> or do any damage. I probably should take responsibility for... I mean, we did a, a lot better after that first one, but like most of <laughs> the inability to kill monsters, a lot of it was definitely on me that, that time. I would pull monsters in to me and then whiff on my swipe attack and then there'd be three monsters surrounding me, which, great as a tank, I was taking all the pressure off, but... When I'm dying, it doesn't really yeah. do a whole lot of good. <laughs> well, yeah, because so the way the game works also is that once someone dies, they use a healing surge to basically go up to their half hit point value. And you only get two of those. So basically, you get a chance to have two people go down and get res back up to half health. And after that, like, if another person goes down, you guys lose. And so... It becomes really tricky, especially seeing as how I had so little hit points. Sometimes the way like you're revealing tiles and you're trying to, to, to find where you need to go, things are coming from all over the place. It's kind of hard to get out of the way, <laughs> especially when you're trying to push towards a goal. It, 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 yeah, it, I think that made things really tricky from like trying to be the wizard way in the back row perspective. Uh, to uh, to do that successfully, I think made it, it was difficult at times. I guess one thing that I should have set up a little bit better: the exploration in this game. Uh, there's a big stack of dungeon tiles. If you've ever played Betrayal at a, a House on Haunted Hill or yep. Betrayal at Baldur's Gate, uh, it's a very similar mechanic. Like there are the scenario will set up rules for how you set up that deck. Like for instance, in the first one, you have to find a specific tile and it's buried between the ninth and the eleventh tiles in the deck. So you basically have to explore at least eight tiles to have a chance to in the game. So like, you, if you move to the edge of an unexplored tile, you get to flip over another tile, and that'll dictate whether monsters come up, or whether you have an encounter, or uh, you know what happens next in the adventure. The bulk of this game is dungeon diving. How was that core experience? Bernsey, you play a lot of games kind of in this mold, uh, including like the gold standard, Gloomhaven. What did you think of the core dungeon diving? So, like, the dungeon diving is... I like the whole flipping the tiles because you, you don't really necessarily see what's next. Granted, in Gloomhaven, for the most part, most people don't see what's coming next because you know, most people aren't looking at the scenario book to, to see where it's going. So I, I think that does a pretty good job as well as the card flip for the encounters that will happen, especially seeing as how this was the first time we were playing it. All of those were relatively fresh. And as you play through the game, I believe some of those get added to, or is that just in the other game? No, I think monsters get upgraded. I don't recall if encounters okay. change. Gotcha. But I know that at the point we reached in this game, the uh, one of the basic cultists was being upgraded because of the level of success we were having. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, and so it, the thing I would say is that it was difficult, uh, the dungeon... Like, dungeon delving, like, you got surrounded by monsters fairly quickly, and you didn't necessarily know what you had to do at the end, per se. You knew where you needed to get to or what you were looking for, but you didn't really know what would happen then and what you would have to, how you'd have to finish things. And so you had to be prepared for that. But the difficulty, I think, did mirror the difficulty of playing, like, a first-level adventurer, because a first level adventure in D&D, like that party is very squishy and you get up against too many of even a weak opponent like goblins and they can tear face and knock people down. And so I think that 
really mirrored how this worked. And I think part of the reason why we saw success after that first experience was because we could tool our our, our abilities, our powers more towards how we were thinking we were going to be able to work together after having that experience of seeing, okay, we were kind of missing this, we we're kind of missing this. And I, and I think it went much better after that. And then once we figured out the most efficient way to uncover tiles, it was, I think, a lot easier in the second scenario because we kind of rolled through the second scenario without too many issues, if I remember correctly. Yeah, we wiped on the first scenario we played the first time, and then we <clears throat> made it through the next three scenarios. With, uh, I think we struggled on one of them. I think on the second scenario, we escaped with one or zero healing surges left. Yeah. And then we rolled through the third one with the doppelgangers relatively efficiently. Yeah, and a lot of that was because I took Dimension Door, and I was able to just teleport over to the dudes we had to try to reveal to find the other doppelgangers. And so that added a lot of... Uh, movability or mobility and we did a pretty good job of staying together at the right times and then splitting at the right times in that one now you didn't grow up in the mean streets of Mora with us but uh, you've been around this friend group long enough to know that if anyone's going to wreck the game it should be Casey <laughs> Casey should have been the one warping to everyone in that last endeavor I did have a warp card that we used in that one but it wasn't game-breaking by any means, and maybe if I'd have been rolling a lot better, I would have been breaking the game, but that, <laughs> thankfully my, my crappy rolling offset my well, what should have been strong fighter. We already uh, we already covered the fact that you suck at games, but uh, even though you are a terrible fighter and you couldn't fight and couldn't beat any monsters, what did you think of the dungeon diving action? Uh, I thought it was really pretty tough, especially after that first scenario. Like I said, I... I it was kind of impressive how afterwards we all kind of looked at each other and we're a pretty experienced group of, of gamers and we were kind of like wow all right that was a way tougher than we thought what should we do do we split up and try to cover more ground do we stick together no we can't do that because those encounters they just they you know they hurt too bad like they because most of them were your area of effect, kind of, where they would, if you were all in one spot, you would all get hit by it. So it, trying to find that strategy was 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 kind of tough. And like Joey commented on, after we wiped, I think it was a little bit easier. We could kind of discuss it a little bit and then fine tune our characters a little bit by choosing different abilities and things to to make our our characters a little bit more specialty and and what we needed to do to accomplish it, which I thought was really really good. Let's talk a little bit more about encounters. When you flip over a tile, there's a little arrow on it that'll be either white or black, and that tells you how the tile is going to be oriented, but it also tells you whether or not you're going to have an encounter. If you draw a, a card with a black arrow on it, you draw an encounter card. And what we learned in this game was that they really punish the space where it was, like, where you're coming from. And so... After our first run when we wiped, like, we very rarely stood on the same tile together. Like, we'd be close to tiles to each other mm -hmm. so like i could pop in and heal if i needed to but that was like a game-changing thing just getting through that encounter deck one time and knowing what was in it made all the difference for us yeah and i think we also tried to look at okay who has the most hp or defense so that they can keep opening or revealing tiles so that if it was monsters they could maybe be able to soak it up or if it was going to be an encounter that was going to do damage or something negative to them that they would be able to handle it and then everybody else could kind of flock over, too. So I think that also helped uh, having the lay of the land a little bit more. 
I played such an untom-like role in this adventure. <laughs> like, normally, I prefer to be the one sprinting off ahead, grabbing the idol off the pedestal, and then running back and trying not to get crushed by the giant rolling rock. That's, that's the role that I'm comfortable with, and mm-hmm. I was much more docile, and I largely stayed to my my healer roots, partially because we didn't have that much time to play, and I wanted to get through as much of the scenario, and uh, partially because I'm just a terrific teammate, and, uh, you guys are, <laughs> and you guys are lucky to be friends with me. <laughs> the game was challenging. The encounters were difficult. The monsters could be lethal. Like, they don't, they do one to two damage at a time, and our characters range from six to twelve hit points. Uh, there were traps, which could be absolutely yeah. devastating. They could do up to four damage, I believe. They could do from zero to four damage. There are just a lot of ways to die in this game. When you're fighting monsters and you beat the monster, you get loot, which is another core D&D tenant. You can use that loot to uh, either... You can either find items that you can keep and use persistently on your adventures for all time to come, or you can find money or sell your items to get money to level up your character. What did we think of this aspect of the adventure? For me, I'll note, there's lots of crappy loot in this game. <laughs> Casey, you wanted to smash a lot of things. Were you happy with the rewards for the few times that you did fell a monster? Uh, for the most part, yeah. Um, you know, we, we all made the joke, like, with the, ooh, another bag of copper, ooh, another bag of <laughs> copper. But, you know, it's it, it was enough where I think if it was more than the bag of copper, it would have gotten out of hand. Um, so the amount that we were getting was perfect for the... For the upgrades that we needed, and it, and it didn't advance us too fast, where it made the game easy, mm-hmm. um, but it was just enough to keep it interesting, where we weren't getting the crap kicked out of us in the next scenario. Like it was, it was basically just enough to level one, maybe two guys uh, for the next scenario, which was, which seemed about perfect for for what we needed to do. Uh, we leveled me up first because I was the healer, and I think that was after we beat the first scenario. I think. Pat got a level. Did you get a level two, Joey? Casey, were you the only th- one that th- didn't level up? I'm pretty sure I leveled up at the end of the scenario, the last scenario we played. So if we picked it back up, my character would be level two. Yeah, I don't think I did level up in the first game. I think we all leveled up in the second game, which we'll get to. But I think yeah. the first one, I think I was the only one that did not level. And Brinzi, I'll kick it back to you. You played a lot of dungeon crawling games. What did you think of the loot system? Uh, the, so the loot, I think the loot was fine. What was really interesting was the how the experience was used. So you'd get experience points for each of the monsters that you would defeat. And instead of it being like in D&D where the experience would be how you would get your, you'd level up, get your abilities and so on and so forth, here you used experience to negate encounters from happening. And so once you got five experience, you could spend that five experience to negate an encounter when it popped up. Which, it makes sense, like it does logically make sense that that's, you know, you have experience so you know how to avoid it. Uh, but it's just so different from what D&D is, it felt, it felt strange. But, from like an actual gameplay perspective, I really like how that worked because we had to be strategic about it. And then we like had scenarios in the second game where we had so much that we're just like, Dude, why don't we just cancel this encounter? Why are we taking these encounters? Like, we just cancel it. We have, like, 18 experience right now. And, and, and so that was an interesting... I think that was an interesting system. I, I think the fact that... And I don't have... I, I don't have... I don't remember how Descent worked, to be honest. But I do know that when we look at... Um, when we look at 
the loot in Gloomhaven always became so contentious, and people would be fighting over it for the most part. And so I do like the fact that it was shared. We basically used it all as a group and could spend it on, okay, we're going to pool our resources so that this person gets this. We're going to pool our resources so this person gets that. It didn't feel like people had to be out on their own to try to go get to treasure chests uh, or to, to collect the loot. Uh, so I, I do prefer that over how Gloomhaven is because me as a player, I'm not going to prioritize grabbing that stuff over if I needed to do something to try to help the party, I would do something to try to help the party and try to get loot before the end if possible. But, uh, and, and so I know for other people that might be different, but. What are you, what are you trying to say? I'm just, just a sly smile. I, I'm just looking at you, expecting you to, you, to, to chime in on that. I thought of AJ more than you, Tom. So <laughs> if anybody in our friend group is, is a loot hoarder, it would be AJ, not you. <laughs> How much gold does everybody have? Tom, 200. <laughs> Casey, 300. AJ, 5,700. <laughs> I gotta pay back my bank loan. <laughs> so uh, you want to distribute that so we can all level up? No. <laughs> I'm good. Picking back up after a technical difficulty, we had been talking about the dungeon diving experience. We talked about loot. We talked about how experience works. Did we have anything else we wanted to talk about, like that core monster fighting D&D goodness, or do we want to move on to the other aspects of this game? I mean, it was it was fun to fight the monsters. I do like that it was simplified. So, I mean, instead of rolling to hit, then rolling for damage, uh, or having to think of all sorts of different numbers, it's basically the card tells you plus whatever. And it's always just against whatever that AC number is for the enemy. And so that made it really easy to be able to determine, oh, I hit it, oh, I didn't. Which sometimes adding the numbers can get uber complicated when you're actually doing D&D. So having that be streamlined, I think, helped with the dungeon diving experience because it didn't get in the way of the exploration, which I think the game does really well. Because I, I do like the Baldur's, uh, the betrayal at Baldur's Gate flipping of things and revealing. So you're saying you hate rolling a d20, adding your attack modifier, then calculating damage, rolling a 1d8, adding plus 4, and then, oh, save for half damage. Yes. Yes, because, well, and also it's every single attack that you're attacking with might have a different modifier and might do different amounts of damage. And are you using it one-handed or are you using it two-handed? And, oh, it's a magic spell, so you have to look at your spell attack modifier. Uh, and then you get to look at, yeah, it's just so much. And it, it has its place, like D&D, like that stuff has its place. But this makes it a lot more just about the actual game experience as opposed to... Uh, a math experience and it allows the game to try to focus on a narrative there are 12 scenarios in this book i will uh share a thought i wasn't particularly grabbed by this narrative like it did it was fine enough for like setting up something to do but i think the gold standard for a narrative in a game is probably gloomhaven which you played a lot more than me or uh the star wars one comes to mind imperial assault i yeah. thought did a really great job of like telling a story within the game for me this game didn't grab me at all with its narrative where did you guys check in at i mean there wasn't a ton surrounding the narrative there was a brief setup for each scenario of like a paragraph maybe two to set it up but there's no like 
big description of any sort of grand thing that's going on. And granted, maybe that's because of, I mean, ultimately having read the actual like scenario book for the D and D campaign of like the elemental evil stuff. Like it, it makes sense because you just start stumbling into the fact that all of this is happening. And then by the end of it, you have to stop this huge scheme of all these elements rising up and you have to try to stop all of them, but no setup in this makes it difficult to get into anything. Yeah. We played a quarter of this game. Do you, think that the narrative will pick up and be interesting by the end? Or do you think it's going to stay on this level where it's just setting up a fun thing to do? Yeah. Like, especially in this game, I didn't necessarily get that it was going to really be building. I thought the last scenario was interesting with the doppelgangers, but that was less the story and more just the mechanics of how you had to, you were fighting in a town instead of in the dungeon, like the first two scenarios And you were doing different things instead of just wandering around and killing things, which I thought was an interesting change up, but it wasn't the narrative that made it interesting. Yeah, I agree. I think it was just a pretty basic dungeon crawling experience. I I really liked that doppelganger mission because it did throw in a little bit of a a curveball. You know, Mm -hmm. like you said, it wasn't just the same thing over and over and over again, which I think is in a game like this, you need some mixture of something just to keep it interesting uh but but overall like you guys said and and touched on it you know the the actual storytelling is kind of lacking and let's be honest there isn't um probably a whole lot of people that have read the the books like like you did joey so you're not kind of getting that whole background Mm -hmm. already and so you don't have a lot of knowledge of what's going on so so not having that and then not having it in the game is is kind of something that, that is probably missing with with this yeah, for me, having not played anything set in the Temple of Elemental Evil or having like any background, they could have called this Tom's house. <laughs> Just like exploring Tom's endless basement and the horrors he has down there. Horrors? Horrors. You horrors. really gotta hit that R, that last R. <laughs> well, I mean, this show is marked as explicit on Apple Podcasts. Dr. C would love Tom's whorehouse. <laughs> He'd love it. <laughs> Tom's House of Horrors. Yeah. <laughs> well, what are this game's strengths? Casey, you played the least of these type of board games. What stood out to you for a strength of this game? It had uh, really simple rules. So I think if you don't play a lot of board games, I think, you know, just getting into it, setup is really simple. Um, it takes a lot of, like we talked about, the the uh you know the, the damage and things like that you don't have to do all the calculation it's all very simplified and everything with that which was great um and i think this would be something where it would be easy for me if i had this to to play it with my my kids at the ages that they're at and i think that's something that that would be be fun to play with them uh, as a family kind of game i agree i think this game is a great gateway for people who are unfamiliar with D and or like hardcore fantasy board games like i think it's a great way to introduce people or something a little bit lighter that you could play with pretty much any crowd right well because if if you're starting a D campaign character creation is one like three hour session usually if people haven't played an rpg before you have to spend that much time just walking them through this is what a character sheet is these are the options you have here's where in the book you look for this here's where in the book you look for this okay now we got to buy equipment this is how this works And, and so it's just so much and this streamlines it down into a much simpler process which i think is 
is good to hopefully draw people in to want them to put in the time to maybe doing a tabletop RPG in the future where you're not constrained by the rules of a board game. It just sort of more wide open for what you're looking for. Uh, I, I like the just one die roll, like I said before, as opposed to having a series of die rolls and checks for all sorts of different things. Uh, the one thing I was wondering about, um, and maybe this starts to jump into the final takeaways, but I'm not sure how much replay value like these games would have. Like if you have gone through it with a group and finished all the 12 scenarios, would you really want to dig it out again? Is there enough replay value in just playing as a different character class? Or is like once you see everything that happens, is there really a lot more to go through with it? Well, let's reframe that exact thought this way. Are we ever going to go back to this game? We played through one quarter of the game and we had a good time, but there's a nearly infinite number of games that we could play with our spare time. Is yeah. this group of people going to get together to play this game again together? I think if we all got together again, I would not play this one, but I would play the next game that we're talking about over this one, in my opinion. like I just think the next one is, and we'll get into it, but a little bit more streamlined, a little bit... Um, better kind of technically overall is it because you were bad at this one i was no i was bad at the other one too but, but in, in the same way the the bad rolling lasted the entire day it wasn't just one game so so i was still bad at the other one but uh and i guess we'll get into it but my at least i was a paladin in the other one and could do some healing so it, it wasn't uh all me killing myself over and over again <laughs> I agree. This this was a fun game. I enjoyed it, and I will definitely play this game again. But when our like core group of hardcore friends gets together again, I just can't see this coming back to the table. Like unless you guys really want to see what happens. But what's more likely is I'll play through with Phoenix and a couple of other friends sometime, and I can just let you guys know if the story gets interesting or not. Yeah, I mean that that's probably how it would that that's probably how it would play out. Because if we we're gonna get together, we'd play something probably harder, beefier. Something where you guys can beat each other up because you guys just love to beat each other up in board games. I love to beat up Patrick. I love ruining the fun for Patrick. And it's so funny. <laughs> our uh, our friend Pat, the rogue hippo, he moved away for five years. And prior to that, I had moved away for about five years. So for about a decade, one of my best friends in the world, I'd only see him when we were gaming. Like we'd play in these gaming weekends. One of us would fly somewhere. And like uh, for whatever reason, I just go after Patrick when we play games. And like I just... I'm so focused on just ruining the experience for him and making sure that he doesn't best me. Uh, I hung out with him socially for the first time in ages, like a couple weeks ago. He, he was doing some stand up and I went to see it and he's like, oh, this is nice. Like, I'm not being an asshole to you. Like, not... <laughs> we can just talk about whatever. And it's like, oh, yeah, there used to be more to our friendship than just gaming. <laughs> cool. uh, we all love you, Pat. <clears throat> yeah. We're going to step away from the table for just a minute. We are going to talk about some monsters for our top five today. We are going to cover Tom's five favorite D&D monsters from D&D 3.5. It's time now for... Tom Awesome's Top 5 Countdown. Five, four, three, two, one... My top five favorite D&D monsters. I had a lot of fun flipping through my 3.5 monster manual to get ready for this. So what I 
I mean, these are just like my personal favorites. There are some really iconic monsters, and I stuck them all in the honorable mention because, like, you can't talk about D and D without the dragons because dragons in the freaking name. So I didn't put dragons in my top five list. Number five on my list, the Cloaker. This is a relatively low-level monster. There's going to be a theme here. There's a lot of low-level monsters because none of our campaigns ever really got to a point <laughs> where we took on a lot of the big baddies. So uh, hang on to your hats, folks. <laughs> Number five, the Cloaker. This is just a, like an annoying cape-like bat thing that hangs out in dark places and like uh, is just a nuisance for people. Like it can drop down on someone's head as they're trying to walk through a dungeon. And as a DM, I just I had a lot of fun with it. <laughs> Oh, yeah, they all just mess with your friends, too. So another recurring theme. Oh, yeah. Number four, the Displacer Beast. This is just like a big uh, a big cat, basically, with tentacles on its head. But what I thought was neat about the Displacer Beast was if somebody rolls an attack and hits it, there's a 50% chance they're going to miss. So, like, even if you hit, like, I, maybe critical hits always hit. But even if you had this awesome sweet roll and you're like, yeah, I hit the monster. I'm like, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to roll this. And, oh, you miss. Brutal. Yeah. Yeah, take that, Pat. <laughs> that cat's going to get you. Number three, the doppelganger. Uh, I mean, we played them in, uh, played against them in the D&D board game. They're just, they open up so many different narrative hooks. And I remember the first time I used them in as a DM, the players, like, they knew there was something off about these people. But, like, every NPC that they ran into was really uh, just wacky. Like, there's one where I talked weird and they, like, I knew... I was making real words, but, like, I tried to do this, like, really weird accent, and they just couldn't understand me at all. <laughs> and, like, Pat and AJ would just look at each other and be like, what? <laughs> was it, like, Bane? Was it, oh. It kind of was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I because I will defeat you, Batman. I will get you and eat you and your children. So basically, Bane was based on my D&D campaign. That's the takeaway here. That's, what, that's where you got it from? <laughs> yeah. Tom Hardy, you're welcome. It's, it's a brotherhood of Tom things. You guys wouldn't understand it. Apparently not. Number two, the Beholder. Now, I view the Beholder as like the iconic fantasy mm-hmm. monster. It's a big like floating monster. It's got one big eyeball in the middle, a bunch more eyeballs on different stocks. It has big mouth with sharp teeth it does all sorts of crazy magic stuff and lots of things to mess with your party it's a big ba monster and it's cool yeah it is cool and it's funny because the beholder probably is the most iconic even though it's not you know dungeons and beholders it's dungeons and dragons but it surpassed the dragons i think even though dragons are cool it definitely is much more iconic now for D D. Agreed. My honorable mention, I had to throw this one on. Sentai, like, this whole list is filled with, like, inside jokes for, like, three friends. <laughs> but on uh, that same campaign, Pat had a follower. And uh, later on, we brought on one of my friends from college, and he was secretly trying to kill the group. And he managed to get the follower alone. He killed the follower, but somebody else in the party had, like, an ability where he had a chance to revive the follower. But there's also a chance something wacky would happen. And the follower turned into a centaur. <laughs> Just like a human male turns into a centaur. (laughs) I'm alive, guys. Hey. So I've always had an affinity for centaurs in D&D from that point on. Uh, the digester is kind of a neat one. Do you guys are you familiar with what that looks like? Not at all. It is like a six foot dinosaur that is just shaped like a stomach and shoots acid out of its like 
Casey, you're the doctor here. Like, what goes down into the stomach? Esophagus. The esophagus. So, like, the esophagus is gone, and there's, like, that's a hole. Like, it's mouth, and it just... That, yeah. I, I could see how that would be bad. Some, some real GERD issues with that beast. Oh, my GERD. <laughs> <laughs> dragons, of course. It's Dungeons and Dragons. There's all kinds of dragons. Uh, mm. The Shocker Lizard is one that I used in a lot because it's another low-level monster, and it can, like, stun people, and it's just it can be really irritating, so I like to throw that at my parties to, uh, you know, try to ruin their fun because that's what I do. I'm a big fun ruiner. And the last one I had on my honorable mentions is the Mind Flare. Like, the Mind Flare is a cool thing. It's uh, How do I describe a Mind Flare? It's shaped like a human, kind of, except its head is a squid. Uh, it has all these telepathic powers, and I believe it floats instead of walking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Mind Flayers are pretty awesome. Like, I would definitely have Mind Flayers on my top five. Uh, just because, like, the telepathic stuff that they can do to people can really mess with them. Uh, and uh, they're... they're powerful mages usually too so yeah they're cool and they're totally ba but you know they're just not as cool as the cloaker which uh just <laughs> tells you the integrity of my list <laughs> it's not something i just threw together like between work and you guys getting here today it was a really thoughtful list here guys so the number one is a terminator then <laughs> <laughs> robot burns he's a robot <laughs> it's an I'm, a, I'm a cybernetic organism I am a robot. <laughs> it's a robot covered in flesh. Yeah, it's a robot. Android. Robot. <laughs> and, I mean, okay, I'm wrong on this argument because I picked the T-1000, which is a f-ing robot. It's just made out of that fancy metal. I'm going to have to edit this section so much. I hate you guys. <laughs> Getting me all worked up. Next, you're going to throw Frodo Baggins at me. Nah. But number one on that list. Number one, liches. I've, uh, I've always had an affinity for liches. Like, I'm drawn towards spellcasters in general, and these are undead spellcasters. They're usually big, powerful enemies that can uh, afford to play the long game because they don't die ever. So, like, they can basically plan things that take a 100 years to come to fruition, and they'll just sit in their crypt and, like, wait for the opportunity to be right to capitalize and grab the MacGuffin and ruin the fun for the players. <laughs> yeah. It's Tom Awesome's top five fun ruiners. <laughs> that's that i mean that is how i would envision you being a dm so that that's fitting yes yeah my friends would have been so much happier like if we had just bought like pre-made campaigns but like you know we were in high school and we started playing funds were tight it's like well i bought the uh dm's guide so i guess i'm the dm i win i mean there are still there's still lots of leeway though even in those pre-made scenarios to go off add things bring in new things and I think that what I've usually found is that it's surprising how much can come out of even a pre-made, uh, a pre-made campaign because there's a lot of leeway for the party to take things in different directions. I mean, it, I don't want to say anything because it's the same campaign that you guys are playing, but like we, the Lost Mine of Fandelver, like we, the like how far we made it in the campaign, things went way off the rails. Mm pretty fast and it was all just amazing fun so i, I don't know I, that's i think one of the best things about D is that it's a really good setting for you to have some good uh immersive and improv like storytelling it's gonna be a good time i can't wait till we get that campaign going what did we miss tweet your thoughts to at tom sidlogic oio or email the show at overratedpod at gmail.com so 
a guy. You said so. Put a dollar in the jar. Well, it's in the script, though. Oh, so, okay. So okay, I have to so. say so. So. <laughs> Saying so all the time. So. That's, that's the so song. all the time. Yeah, yeah. You only hear what I want. You only no, hear what I want. Holy crap. So a guy I know has developed some really terrible posture issues after being repetitively forced to speak into a microphone multiple times a month for hours on end. Is there anyone my friend can reach out to to address his slumping kyphosis? I can't. Check out Premier Health. They have solutions for back pain, neck pain, car accident, podcast injuries, and more. We suggest seeing Dr. Camille in Golden Valley, Minnesota. Learn more at PremierHealthMN.com. That is PremierHealthMN.com. Our next topic today is a documentary that explores the history, influence, stories, and lasting impact behind the art of Dungeons & Dragons. I randomly stumbled across Eye of the Beholder on free to stream on Prime, and I thought it would be a perfect addition to our show tonight. The film profiles D&D artists, both past and present, and also features former company insiders, game designers, authors, and fans. It is directed by Kelly Slagle and Brian Stillman. This is the first documentary that I've ever watched about art. So I didn't really know what to uh, expect going in, but one of the iconic things about Dungeons & Dragons is the monsters. And I I never thought about the role that Dungeons & Dragons had in like bringing fantasy art to the mainstream. So it was really cool to uh, learn a lot about that history. Yeah, I, it's just it's one of those things where even like preparing for campaigns and stuff, you're searching for all these images and you find tons of different images about a lot of these different monsters. And you just don't think about how that all came from somewhere. And that at some point, like a cloaker didn't exist and someone had to come up with what the heck a cloaker looks like and, and and actually put that on a page. And it was really interesting to look at like how much detail can be created from just the wonkiest, dumbest ideas for monsters sometimes. Yeah. I thought that was really cool too. Like, um, just what it adds to the campaigns and things like that, especially way back in the eighties when nobody, like when it first started and it was just words on paper and, and somebody took those words, created an image from it. And then they started, you know, printing these books with, with the monsters and stuff in it. And then as you're doing your campaign, you could actually hold up the picture and be like, this is what you're fighting. Mm-hmm. And then like, you don't think about that because we've been around it forever and you can just go on the internet now and you can like, what the hell is a beholder if you don't know what it is, you know? But um, just having that there and seeing that way back when and just how it's developed over the years is, is pretty amazing. Casey, you're annoyingly good at most things. Are you artistic as well? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I hate you so much. For, for me, not being artistic, like even in the smallest way or fashion, watching these artists and the art that they produce was like watching freaking wizards actually like go to work like it is amazing what they were able to do with a canvas and paintbrushes and like the artwork that they did for the books and for dragon magazine early on like that was actual artwork those were artists painting things the show didn't explain how they took a painting and actually put it on the cover of a magazine that would have been super duper fascinating to learn but just i thought it was fascinating the work that these guys were 
doing basically locked in a room in a warehouse together well and they, and they were talking t- about the different processes of the f- like especially when they got into the four big ones from like the early 80s the four kind of big artists of Dungeons and Dragons when it hit its heyday and one of them was Todd Easley and hearing them talk about his process where he would just sit there and stare at the canvas and what he had drawn on there or what he'd been painting and just stand there and stare at it for like an hour and then walk away and then come back and stare at it again. And not, it seemed like not to do anything to it for like hours on end. And it's just like, that reminded me of when I did art in high school and I was just, I was like a tortured artist because I would just fret over the smallest things and continue to just like think about it and think about it and think about it. My art teacher would come by and he'd be like, yeah, that looks fine. That looks great. It's like, ah, that the shading's just not right here. And it just, the reflection doesn't look normal. And I'm just like, and he's like, okay, Joe, I think it's time for you to go take a walk. <laughs> <laughs> and so we had this deal where I could get up and just walk uh, if I needed to. And uh, so then it came time to sign up for classes because he was also our homeroom teacher. And I was like, Mr. Stevens, do you think I should sign up? What art class do you think I should sign up for next year? He's like, Oh, Joe, you don't want to do that to us now, do you? <laughs> I never took another art class again. Wow. <laughs> Sounds like a dick, dude. No, it was true because I took way too much time on things and I it would have tortured me even more because I just couldn't. I always sweated the details with it and couldn't get past it. But it made me feel good. That at least like this really good artist was able to do that. But by the end, he actually got really awesome stuff out there. So maybe you would have too, Joe. Maybe you would have too. I want to share a quick uh, fun story that I had, a fun encounter I had with a high school teacher. I took Spanish once, and we had two Spanish teachers in two years. And the second one and I didn't particularly get along at all. <laughs> and uh, it was getting towards the uh, end of the semester, and it was time to sign up for classes for the next year. And I asked her, are you going to be back here next year? Because it was for her first year teaching. She said, yeah, why? I said, oh, because now I have to go drop Spanish. <laughs> wow. In front of the whole class. <laughs> Oh man, good stuff. Poor, 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 poor lady. These are no, she wasn't. She was a terrible person. <laughs> these artists—they were creating all of this artwork, and in the early days, the documentary explained that they actually like retained the rights to their artwork. So, like, some of them were pulling out their portfolios and showing the original paintings that were like in the monster <clears throat> manual for Advanced Dungeons and Dragons or on different pieces of dragon art. At some point, the whole situation got more corporate and the company decided that they were going to keep the art. And so all the art would go into a vault, which I can understand a company is paying these people to produce this work and there could be value for it down the line. And I I understand like hanging on to it as a resource. What I don't understand is later on in the show, they said that they just started throwing the artwork away. Like they just clear out the vault and like they just send dumpsters of it away and not tell the artist or tell anybody they got the artist got lucky one time and somebody noticed that it was happening so they were able to like run and like retrieve a dumpster load of art that was just going to be thrown away imagine the amazing amazing iconic dandy pieces that are just in a landfill somewhere well wasn't one of them that they rescued in that one the it was like the original it was the big uh was it an easily painting it was the one with the gems for the eyes and like the yeah. thief's trying to pry oh, the yeah. eye out and, like that was one of the very first covers or something like yeah. that wasn't it yeah, yeah. If not the first cover, yeah. It's, it's, well, and and TSR, like from reading of Mice and Men, 
like you get a little bit of the rise and fall of TSR in that. Quick, quick clarification: Dyson Men of Dyson Men, yeah, of Dyson Men. <laughs> different story. Yes, no, um, it's it's about the same, you know. Lenny, which is TSR, took Dungeons and Dragons and like was petting it, and then just broke its neck, you know. Yeah, uh, and and apparently Wizards of the Coast has revived it, and it's healthy. Well, it was like uh, was Lenny TSR or was he Gary Gygax? Uh, one and the same. Yeah. All right. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah, yeah. It checks out. Yeah. Yeah. It checks yeah. Out. yeah. There's your uh, literary knowledge for the day. Yes. <laughs> yes. That that author knew what he was doing. Totally. That author was a cool dude. That was a good interview. Yeah. Steinbeck. No, not oh. Steinbeck. <laughs> no. John Steinbeck. Get that the F out of cool, here. That would have been a cool interview. <laughs> From beyond the grave. Tom the Lich has brought back John Steinbeck for an interview. Well, what would you do with your supernatural powers? Well, I would make the grapes out of Zarath. I don't know why he has a German accent. <laughs> know. It was a dust bowl. It was the worst of times. Yep. Okay. One, la- one last note I had on the, uh, on the documentary. It was interesting how the artists had to interact with the game designers because like a game designer is designing something, whether it's the monster manual or it's like a campaign where he needs like this for the cover and this size image on this page of the thing. And the artists really had to uh, work with the designers to try to get a cartoon bubble of what they needed to create, of what the designer envisioned and expected so that they didn't have to go through countless iterations i thought that just that whole interaction was fascinating well and then they were talking about how at times like the request got to be so ridiculous where they were having you know it's just this still image but they're talking about this entire scene that's happening of someone falling and stabbing something and then like things are falling out of their bag and it's just like we can't do that in one image, you know? That was an interesting point. And there was an also another point where things were, again, getting more corporate. And corporate stepped in and they had some absolutely ridiculous requests oh, yeah. where they once told an artist to use your most – just use your most expensive paints on this. Yes. And another one where they said, use every color. Yeah, I thought that was – funny too and then they showed like the overlay of what it actually would have looked like <laughs> like just smeared red like over top of everything like, yeah it was pretty pretty ridiculous Corp- corporations are are sometimes very awful yes they can be uh we also did get the answer that we've been wondering about and and so women can have bikini armor because magic Oh, yeah. The armor's yeah. in their head. It's fine. They're not going to get hit. Yeah, they had a community manager from D&D, too, also confirming that that's how it works. Yeah. yeah. So that's the answer. We don't. There doesn't need to be any more worries on the internet about it. <laughs> that's yeah. the answer. That's the answer. Also, the author of, of Dyson Men is David M. Ewalt. I didn't even have to look it up. It just came to me. It's impressive. Nope, book's not in here. Okay. In- I was just trying to look behind me and see if it was like over my shoulder, and then that's how you picked it up. That's yeah. good. That's awesome. No, it was really, really bothering me that I couldn't remember it off the top of my head. <laughs> because he was very generous and did a wonderful interview with yeah, us. Yeah, that was an awesome interview. Uh, yeah, he was great. Yeah, he was. One of the things that I also really liked was talking about the evolution of the dragons and how each of those like main four original artists had like a different sort of take on dragons. And then they went into like the in-depth talk with the artist who, when Wizards of the Coast took it over, like redesigned dragons and the ideas that he came to. So sort of like how he thought that they were much more feline. And so in more recent Dungeons and Dragons, they look a little bit more like cat or dinosaur like in that they, they don't have like these arms that like go out like human arms. 
Instead, they're all on the ground and they have a lot more that they do with their heads and neck. And also talking about then, that's how they came up with like the differentiations between the different colored of, colors of dragons and how those looked different and how like the way their horns or their necks looked went into sort of like the same thing as the powers and how they drew up like these physiologies and like the muscles and how all the muscles work on them. And they had like the different names for them. It was just, it was, it was really cool to see how much detail that went into that and how much care went into really trying to literally flesh out these mythical creatures. Yeah, it is very interesting, especially since, I mean, Dungeons and Dragons has only been around since the eighties, but dragons have been around Mm -hmm. forever, you know, like Chinese culture, dragons have been around for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, It's been around in like Norse mythology and, and everything else. So like, there's been drawings of dragons, but the way that these artists kind of took that and took their own ideas and, like I said, fleshed everything out and added and just evolved over the, over the years is something that was that was pretty pretty cool how they were able to, to to do that. Yeah, artists are freaking wizards, dude. Yeah, like it's just amazing. Sure is. Art it, is sweet. Art is sweet. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here at Ohio first. <laughs> Once again, that was Eye of the Beholder. I, It is available right now to stream on Prime for free if you have a Prime subscription. I don't know if it's on any other streaming services. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, everyone has access to Prime now, right? So, you know, if you're interested in the art behind Dungeons & Dragons and its evolution, really fascinating look. It was just, it was really cool to see how they work and how things came together and how they delineated the work and everything. Moving on from the documentary, our final topic tonight is the board game Waterdeep. Dungeon of the Mad Mage. It's completely natural. It's a natural sentence. I don't know why you're laughing. Like our first game tonight, this is a cooperative dungeon crawler where you play through a variety of scenarios, battle monsters, find treasure, and grow more powerful. Setting up the game in the city of Waterdeep rests a tavern called the Yawning Portal, which is admittedly a super cool name. Mm -hmm. It's named after the gaping pit in its common room. At the bottom of this crumbling shaft is a labyrinth dungeon known as the Undermountain, domain of the mad wizard Halister Blackcloak, who has seeded his lair with monsters, traps, and mysteries. I mean, that's a way better hook than the Temple of Elemental Evil had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. This is a more recent game released in 2019, designed by Kevin Wilson. Any familiarity with his work? So his name was familiar to me, but I I looked at like the games he designed and I didn't like I don't think I've ever played any of them, but the name sounded familiar. That's interesting. I wonder if these are like Wizards of the Coast game designers or if they're freelance people like <clears throat> Yeah, Wizards or Hasbro cuz Hasbro like owns Wizards of the Coast and does a lot of the games too. Sure. Or WizKids is the arm of Hasbro that does this. So yeah. Yeah, well, we, we have no idea. We're just talking out of our ass now. <laughs> the game has a rating of 7.9 on BoardGameGeek, which is a full half a point higher than its Temple Brethren. Dungeon of the Mad Mage. <laughs> Stop laughing at me, Burns. You're hurting my feelings. <laughs> I'm trying to make you feel better. We'll start once again with the characters that we were drawn to and why we chose them. I chose Tropser, the plucky gnome rogue. I was hoping to do some sweet backstab damage after just being the healer the first time. Like, I wanted to get in there and mess some monsters up. And so, going the opposite direction, I picked Cormac, the half-elf cleric, because I was like, oh, he's a cleric, and I wanted to be a support class like I would maybe usually be, only realizing afterwards that Cormac didn't heal other people, he just healed himself and was more of a battle cleric, so... 
Oh, it was helpful. intentions. Yeah. Well, thank you for trying. And I, playing this game for the first time, like they recommend the cards, excuse me, the powers that you should bring in with you. So like it would have been hard to see the future without like looking yeah. at the cards and not being familiar with the character. So uh, a rare game where a cleric is not, not a healer, just a fighter. Right. Which meant we got to watch Casey die a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I played uh, Nayeli, I believe was the name, a human paladin. Um, and I obviously I was drawn to the tanky character still, but this time I opted for one that uh, allowed me to heal the party and, and heal myself in, in the process. So how do these expectations for our characters play out? Casey, you wanted to fight monsters and do some healing? Did you well, get to live that power fantasy? Yes and no. I mean, after I... In the beginning, when, when I set it up, um, I don't remember if I followed the game's suggestions or not but i went for more of a fighter and then with the just the healing powers for myself i think and then once we realized that joey <laughs> was not a healer <laughs> i had to change and then i i adapted to more of one that actually healed the party so this one like uh the fighter in the first one um a lot of it was adjacent but i instead of the monsters being adjacent to me, it was important for me to be adjacent to everybody else, which was not so great for encounters, but for healing, uh, it was really important because I could absorb damage. So if I, if I was adjacent to somebody and they got hit, I could take their damage, and then I had some self-healing so I could could reheal that damage that, that I took from them. So, which is so that super, was helpful. It's super helpful because I think you had 12 hit points. My rogue had six hit points. So like if I lose all six of my hit points and I fall and I use one of our surge tokens, I only get three health points back where you would get six. So uh, if health is a shared resource, it was nice to have you taking that damage to keep the rest of us alive a bit more. One quick noteworthy thing, even though <laughs> neither of our healers knew how healing worked in this game, uh, we still survived that first encounter, which yeah. is pretty remarkable. Yeah. Uh, Bernsey, how did uh, your plans work out in practicality? Uh, well, I mean, aside from my plans of trying to be the helpful support person and then finding out that I couldn't do any of that, uh, I, I really just focused on giving, trying, sort of like I did with the first game then, of what were the what were the abilities that I had that were going to give me the most opportunities to hit? So the highest to hit value. Uh, but also the other good thing about like Cormac at least was that a lot of my abilities also gave me benefits. And so whirling spear was like one of my main attack abilities that I had. And whether I hit or not, I would get plus one to my AC, which was huge because if I'm, if I have to be in the, in the thick of things, and have to be fighting everybody in the octagon, uh, I want to be at least a little bit more defensible when that stuff was coming at me. I also had False Life, which basically gave me two free hit points uh, whenever I wanted to take it. And so basically I would have extra hit points that could just sit on top of me to, to soak up more damage if I needed to. And then I also had Insect Plague, which... I would put out on a tile and it would be able to, I could spend it to deal extra damage when a monster was damaged on that tile, which allowed us to kill certain things because we didn't have to worry about hitting it. As long as it got hit, then we could just bam, bam, take two more off and kill it. Hopefully quick aside. Have you ever beaten the original Baldur's Gate? 
No, I've only played like the first few hours of it. So the end boss in that game is a guy called Saravok, and uh, he is just a beast to take on. Like if you try to melee him, he's gonna crush you. If you try to use ranged attacks, he's gonna crush all your melee characters and then come get you. If you try to be a mage, he resists all your spells. Super duper frustrating. I had to beat him like probably, or I had to fight him maybe thirty times to beat him when I played through it recently on the Switch. The thing that turned the tide for me, the difference maker in the battle with the big final boss. Insect swarm. Nice. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, I just kept dinging them for one hit point at round after round after round, and that was the only way I could hurt the freaking guy. Yeah. And, like, basically, he killed my entire party, and I just cast Insect Swarm and ran from him. There's, <laughs> <laughs> like, traps all over that final room, too, so you have to be real particular about where you step. And, like, he's got all these minions, and they're really lethal, too, so, like, Insect Swarm for the win. <laughs> nice. I'll have to remember that whenever I take that game on. Well, it came in handy in this this game, too. Yeah. It did. Yeah. Yeah. Insect Swarm. Vastly underrated. The most underrated aspect of Dungeons and Dragons. Insect Swarm spell. <laughs> it, 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 you heard it here for, first, folks. And, yeah. and make sure you have a tank cleric as well <laughs> in your party. Yeah, so that he won't be distracted by all that healing and stitching up wounds and all that. <laughs> hey, I healed myself. It's all right. I wanted to do all this sweet backstab damage and take down some big monsters. I wound up being trap guy. <laughs> Because uh, the rogue just has a lot of abilities that tie to traps. Like I had one where I think if I disarmed a trap, I got to do an extra ability. So I could move, I could do a thing, and if that thing was disarm a trap, I could do another thing. There are a lot of traps in these dungeons. So yeah. having trap guy, I felt like I was super helpful here. And then similar to Joey, I uh, my abilities also had like a secondary effect. What what just happened? What just fell? Paper fell, fell off, off the tower. top of your computer tower. That has nothing to do with the party this weekend, so don't you guys look at it. Well, I can't. It fell on <laughs> yeah. the other side of the good, computer. Good. Yeah, that's right. Good job, computer. Are you giving away the yeah. computer at the Patreon party? No, I'm not giving away a computer <laughs> at the Patreon party. Tom's retiring here. Take my podcast. <laughs> he signed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I finally know what I'm going to do with the original soundboard for a while. <laughs> Getting back on track, similar to Joey, my attacks generally had other abilities too. And the one that I favored uh, gave me advantage. Uh, this game has advantage and disadvantage. If you have advantage, you get to roll two dice when you're attacking and you get to take the higher one. If you're stuck with disadvantage, which many enemies will inflict upon you, you roll two dice when you attack and you're forced to take the lower. So hit or miss, I was always getting advantage, which always gave me a better chance to hit the next time. So you talked about taking abilities that gave you the best percentage chance to hit i could take things with a lower percentage chance to hit because i knew that i was going to have advantage more time so i you know tried to load up on that sweet damage so i could really give those traps what how <laughs> what have you what for what for? all the all, yeah. all the above work. yeah yeah i make a living with my words yeah that's unfortunate yeah <laughs> i'm just kidding sorry for my employer <laughs> <laughs> it's a jeep shot This game is built, it's the same system as the other game that we played, as the Temple of Elemental Evil, and there's a lot of these Dungeons and Dragons games now that are based on the same system, so theoretically you could take your characters, you could take different elements of these, different tiles, and like put them together and intersperse them. So let's talk about, there's a lot of similarities between the games, but let's spend a little time focusing on how the games were different. Uh, as Trap Guy, I think I'm 
contractually obligated mm-hmm. to talk about the trap deck. That was a new mechanic in this game. In Temple of Elemental Evil, all the traps are little tiles. And when you have, when you draw a tile and there's a trap symbol on it, you just draw a token out of the tile, a trap token, and you put it on that. And uh, when someone disarms it or fails to disarm it, you flip it over and resolve it. In this game, in Dungeon of the Mad Mage, there is a deck, and if you draw a particular trap token tile it'll say to draw a card and then you draw from this deck and then something real bad is going to happen yes is there maybe 12 cards in this deck and they they could really mess up your plans i the one that stands out to me like i was running up ahead i was trying to find the MacGuffin so that we could win the game and i draw this trap card and it's a portal and it sucks you all the way back to the beginning of the map (laughs) not even the beginning it says like go back to the like the furthest part of that tile like it puts you <laughs> at, like the farthest away square possible yeah and so like, you guys are all engaged with monsters and it's like, oh well i'll see you in a couple turns guys yeah. I, uh poof gone teleportation trap yeah that was funny when that happened we got that one a couple of times yeah because pat got stuck back near the beginning once too yeah trap deck fun new mechanic yes. what other differences stood out to you guys well i think all of the added decks just made things more interesting as you were exploring. Like the first game had the encounter deck, it had the monster deck, and that was about it. Was there one the, other uh, deck? The loot deck. The, the loot deck. Bane. Yeah. And so on top of that, then we had like the boons and the banes, which oh, the boons would have been great, but I only got banes the entire time. To set that up a little bit, it's another deck of cards. Uh, how are they triggered again? From encounters or from monsters or something? Um. Yeah, so basically an encounter would, would prompt it. Uh, a trap, I think, sometimes would. And then you'd have disadvantage on the roll, so it was a higher likelihood you would get a bane. And yeah, then it was if it was a... You draw a card from this deck, and then you have to roll. And if it's a 11 or higher, you get the boon, which is a good thing. Boons are good. Mm-hmm. But if you roll a 10 or lower, like Casey did, literally every single time he had an opportunity, you get a bane, which is a negative lasting status effect. I can't remember some of the things we were saddled with. I think one, you couldn't be healed or you couldn't do healing. Couldn't couldn't be healed, yeah. So basically, whatever damage I took, I took. <laughs> Forever. Forever. I tell you, I had a healing surge. Yep. They also changed up the encounter deck quite a bit for this game. We talked about how challenging it was in the Temple of Elemental Evil because like, if you're all standing on the same tile, you're all going to get pummeled. Whereas uh, if it's just one of you, maybe one of you escapes with one or two damage or a slight loss of gold. In this game, it seemed a lot more varied. I can't remember any specific examples, but it uh, wasn't just hammering everyone standing on your tile every right. single turn. Yeah, it was more dynamic, I think, than than the first game was. We did find a, uh, a tile in the deck where encounters don't happen. If Normally, if you end your turn without exploring a new tile, you have to draw an encounter card, but we found a tile where you don't do that, so... Basically, we just camped out there yeah. until we found the room that the MacGuffin was in, yep. and uh, we're very strategic and minimized our exposure to encounters because we're very smart people. <clears throat> yes, yes, we're, we're, we're top-tier gamers. Top-tier gamers, yeah. Top-tier. Top shelf. I think one other thing uh, in this game that the other one did not have was that the monsters had ability to add... Um, negative effects on you I, I don't remember if in the first game it did or not but like you said this one you could do give disadvantage but it also there were monsters that like did poison damage and bleed damage and stuff too i think which was not in the first one which was something else that you had to deal with because i remember my paladin specifically had a card 
to remove that. Yeah, I think I think it was possible in the first game in Temple of Elemental Evil, but it was rare. In Dungeon of the Mad Mage, like every single enemy attack will do an extra status effect on top of it. Yeah, and, and basically the the big one was oh gosh, I can't remember what it was. But basically you would take a damage and that damage couldn't be healed except for if like the condition was healed or you did a healing surge. Right. And, and so it made it, it it started to make it more difficult to heal yourself back without more special abilities, which made having that that much more clutch. Because there was a couple of times where you wiped that off of like three of us. And it was like, OK, we have a new, new lease on life now. Uh, so so it just there was a lot a lot more that was added to this game to just make it a more dynamic experience instead of, OK, we're going to get an encounter. It's going to be bad. And then move forward. Uh, and I think it feels like as we were going through the games, and part of this might have just been because I was the one like manipulating the decks in between games, but I, it felt like there was a lot more of, okay, take out these cards, add these cards. Uh, and then mm-hmm. the one thing that I don't think the other game did was uh, if if you fought like big monsters, they then get added to the monster deck and could just randomly come out like our zombie beholders did. Uh, after we fought them in like this, I think it was the second scenario. They were like the big set piece of that scenario. And then in the third scenario, they're just in the monster deck. They could pop out whenever. And they did pop out whenever. And I killed them both. You're both welcome. Drops <laughs> it. The plucky rogue saving everyone's bacon. Yeah, it was a, well, well played. You struck, struck well, friend. See, <laughs> you did more than just traps. Yeah, I did traps and I killed two beholders and I ran across the map one time and I got sucked away by a portal. Yeah. 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 Good stuff. Yeah. A couple other new mechanics in this game. They allowed you to level up to level four. And along with that, basically each level you get another daily power, which were the most powerful things in Temple of Elemental Evil. In Dungeon of the Mad Mage, they also have expert powers. And I should have looked this up. I meant to look this up. I can't remember if this was a new mechanic for this game or if it had been introduced in another game Mm -hmm. in this system. But for us, it was new, and we didn't actually get to use any of these expert powers. I don't know if you get them at level 3 or at level 4, but they are like game-changing abilities. You get one at level 3, and I think one at level 4. At level 3, you get that instead of a new daily power, and then at level 4, you both get an expert and a daily power, an an additional one. Uh, Which is nice, because you're you're getting a much larger bag of tricks um, as the game gets harder for you to be able to pull out against them. There are also other methods of advancement. There are advancement tokens that you can purchase. You can purchase them in both games. In Temple of Elemental Evil, you can buy them after you've leveled up to level 2, which is the highest level you can go. You can basically flip over your character card and you'll have more hit points and you'll have a higher AC Mm -hmm. um, and you get some extra abilities. In Temple of... uh, Not Temple. In Dungeon of the Mad Mage, you can go up to level 4. You get these extra powers and I feel like I just went in a circle because I got distracted when I... Crossed out I temple. Think, and, and the other interesting things with those th- those advancement the advancement tokens is that they change as you level up to give you more of an incentive to buy some of them early. So in the first four scenarios, you get yawning portal ones. After that, you're moving into like a different area, and so it's different different of these items, and and so these could add like add bonuses to your AC. It'll give you a free reroll. And so different ones are going to come later on and they're more expensive. And so it gave you incentive to try to buy them 
uh, earlier, which which is why we were looking at it. We're like, okay, we should buy these now because they're cheap. And uh, that, that'll just give us more tools to use uh, as, as we go through. And uh, I think we use them to some extent. I don't know if we really got a lot of use in our third scenario out of those. I used mine. I, I needed that extra damage point to take down one of the beholders. So I used my advancement token. Yeah. I can't remember if Pat ever used the reroll that he got. He did a, uh, at least once. Okay. I don't remember if it was to his benefit or right, not, but right. I know he did use it. We approached this in a very similar manner to Temple. We uh, we pulled all of our resources. We tried to level up our healers first and get everyone advancement tokens. So, like, we basically sold all of our items except a couple of cool things and uh, just pulled our money to try to make our characters as beefy as possible as early as possible. Mm-hmm. And. In this game too, it was more expensive to level up, right? Like, wasn't it uh, like one two thousand gold instead of one thousand gold? Yeah, but it felt like we also received a lot more loot, a lot more often. I a lot think less more copper of the pouches. Yeah, well, it it would it was copper pouches, but I think we were drawing from the loot deck a lot more. There's but, also a spell deck in this game. We forgot about yes. the spell deck. Yes, and so the spell deck was interesting in that it could happen in various different ways. So I, I think. For loot, I got one time I got to draw a random spell, and I had that that I could use once. It was basically a spell scroll uh, that I could use once uh, whenever I chose to. Uh, Like the zombie beholders, they have four spells out of the spell deck that they use. So you shuffle the spell deck and then draw cards until you get one of those spells, and then that's the spell it does against whoever it can hit with the spell. The hag had a very similar thing. Yes. So there's a couple of the bigger monsters had a similar ability. Yep, have abilities to do those things. And so uh, that also just another interesting dynamic that it added, I think. And, and it might not have been in this game, like you were saying. It could have been in one of the the ones in between Temple of Elemental Evil, which was one of the newer, like, fifth edition ones to Dungeon of the Mad Mage, which is, I think, the most recent one. Actually... They may have come out with one since then, but it's one of the more recent ones. I'll also note you bought the, uh, what was the edition that you bought? So it was the, uh, I can't remember. It was like, I can't remember if it was called Collector's Edition or what it was. But Premier it Edition? It was, it, so it basically it came with the miniatures painted. Such a huge difference. It looks so much better. They yeah. looked so sharp. They did a great job with those minis. And like, I mean, it's another $60, $70, but who? I mean, if you're not buying, like, every board game that comes out, like, if you're going to make a selective purchase, I highly, highly recommend the fancy edition of this game. Yeah, and and ultimately, I ended up buying it for what the price of the retail original edition was because nice. Miniature Market had a huge deal. And so, awesome. and, and that's one that's actually on there, and maybe they sold out all the copies that they had, but that's one that's been on there regularly for the Miniature Market sales when they have those. And so you probably could find it on there. Um if you if you watch for it if you're if you're really interested in it yeah totally worth it this game also had a narrative uh i didn't summarize it going into this because this is your game and i didn't have access to the scenario book or the ability to like text you and say hey what are we doing for these missions again (laughs) so uh i recalled that we walked into the yawning portal (laughs) yeah yes (laughs) Good recollection, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> we fought some monsters, and I disarmed like a, just a crap load of traps. So this is one thing that was pretty similar in that there wasn't a lot of lead-up. It was basically, we're in the Yawning Portal, and they're saying, hey, there's bad stuff going on in this dungeon. Go look at it. So you go down there, and you explore, and then you get out, and barely... Uh, and then I think the second mission, gosh, I can't remember what we were looking for. We had to find something. 
the story was pretty forgettable in this again. Uh, now, I feel like it it felt like anyway that it was building up to something that was maybe going to be more interesting than what it seemed like the Temple of Elemental Evil was. But uh, story is not the strong suit, which is weird because for Dungeons & Dragons, story is like everything. Uh, but... I also understand not wanting to have reams and reams of text that you have to read in between scenarios if you're trying to play a couple of them at a time. Do you think that they were just trying to dial down and getting people into the, like the core monster fighting action and not getting people bogged down with the like flavor text or setting? Probably. And, and like I said, it, it's one of those things that could become because we haven't even seen the Mad Mage yet. Like we've had some. Some of the cards will say you hear the Mad Mage's laughter from deep within the dungeon or something like that. But it, 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 they're, they're doing some things to build this up as to like you're going to end up bumping into Halister Maleficent. That's not his name, but yeah, you know, Black Black Forge or, or whatever. Is, is it Black Cloak? Black Cloak. There you go. Yeah, it's some some very fantasy, fantasy name. And, uh, and, and so I think... I think that's intriguing, but a little bit more oomph to get us into it would have been better, I think. You know what a good fantasy name is? Hmm. Big Rock Smash Face. (laughs) That's a good name, dude. That is solid. I mean, so my favorite name that I've used is actually the name of a pilot I had from Minneapolis to Fort Myers once whose name was Mace Goodhand. And so that was my half-elf paladin was Mace Goodhand. That's pretty good. I uh, I name a lot of characters in like online multiplayer games Patrick's Bane. <laughs> no joke. I've had several, several Ultima Online characters named Patrick's Bane. Or Pat plus butt. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> I tend to go towards Urban Dictionary. I got a lot of Dirty Sanchez's. I got a lot of Billy Blumpkins. Let's see. What else do I have? Uh, Donkey Punch. Yeah, that's your fantasy football team name, and yeah. we're uh, we're getting up on that season. My yep. uh, my female spy in uh, in the uh, Star Wars RPG, or Star Wars uh, MMORPG was maybe a guy. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> she was hot too. Yeah. Names are fun. What are this game's strengths? I thought there was lots of variety, especially with the traps. I mean, I spent a lot of time interacting with those traps. I did an extensive study. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think as we've, we've as we've touched on before, so I'm not going to belabor it too much more. But I think the added card types just added more stuff that the game could pull out to surprise you. You didn't necessarily know what was coming next, uh, which I think which I think was really good. I also think the painted minis, it just looked cooler on the table, uh, made it really interesting. I think the art in general, like on the dungeon tiles and stuff like that, was really good. Uh, one of the downsides, though, is that for some reason in this game, there's two different types of tiles. There's there's dungeon tiles and then there's catacomb tiles, but they all just say dungeon tile on the back, Ooh, which that's is rough. frustrating because it, it took quite a bit more time to try to get those separated and being like, does this look like a catacomb or does this look like a, does this look like a dungeon? And and so it was a little, that was a little bit of a bummer 
on that. And I don't know if it was just a misprint or an oversight. I'm not 100% sure what the deal was with that. But uh, that was one kind of downside. I like that there are a lot more options for advancement in this game. We talked about mm-hmm. you can get more levels. You can get more advancement tokens. All of these positives that we're talking about make it more make this game more for core gamers like us, but like we lose a lot of that like user friendliness from Temple of Elemental Evil. Like adding more decks, you can do more stuff, but visually more overwhelming. Our new player is going to be scared off when like what the hell's a trap deck? Yeah, I mean, I think it's still mm-hmm. more accessible for new players than like jumping them into D and D. This would maybe be something where if you had people play through the Temple of Elemental Evil, then it's like okay, here's like the next step up. Uh, towards like getting to like really complicated board games. Yeah, so we go from a gateway to like the next step. Do we want to like put this into drug reference for people? Yeah, it could be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think as long as you still had one person, like if I'm sitting down uh, to play this with my family, I think we could get through this one. But it, it yes, it takes a lot more explaining. There's a couple of other things in it, but I think you could still get through it. Like if I'm buying one of these games i would probably buy this one over the other one in hopes that we could catch on to it just because in the end this to me is a much more polished and fun game versus uh temple of elemental evil and i i prefer to have the gateway game like i would be thrilled if i had your copy of dungeon of the mad mage birds but like i'm i'm very happy with my purchase of temple of elemental evil because like i know i know i'll be able to play it with phoenix that we'll have some fun with it and maybe we can rope some other people into it Fair enough. Yeah, I think so. I, I think that would probably be that would make sense. Another thing that I thought was the strength of this game was we talked about this already, but the encounters were more varied and just less overbearing. Like the Temple of Elemental Evil is just oppressive. Yeah. Every turn you're getting swarmed by monsters and real bad things coming with that encounter, and it's just it is really, really like just overbearingly challenging. And I thought while this game had its challenges and there were certainly tough monsters to fight, I felt like they softened up the encounters a little bit, which just made it a less like uh, stressful or an intense experience. Yeah, and I would say that the opening scenarios that we played uh, weren't quite as overbearing as like that first scenario in Temple of Elemental Evil was for sure. And to summarize our thoughts here, to me, this is more of a core gamers game. Like if you're a D&D player already if you like big intense like more meteor board games this might still be a little on like the soft side for you or like the less intense side but it's fun and it's meant for those core gamers it's evolved a lot from temple uh you and your DD buddies want to change the pace i think this is a very fun option mm-hmm. yeah i would agree with that i i still think if you know the rules though you could streamline it enough for a more casual person or or like you were saying Casey like your kids or anything like that i think i think you could if you know how the game works and help guide them in some of those early decisions. What if uh, you played like someone other than Casey who could like roll a die and get more than a 10 <laughs> on a D20? That'd probably come in very handy, Tom. <laughs> oh, one, one like little aside, the game only comes with one D20. You really do need a D20 per player. Like we had that when we were playing uh, the first game, uh, the first night. And it just streamlines things a lot better than having to pass this one die around the table over and over and over again. And you get the added benefit of when Casey gets pissed off at his die because it keeps rolling low numbers, he can switch to another die to get mad at. <laughs> exactly. <Correct. laughs> 
<laughs> Which that happens in every D and D game I ever play in is somebody's like, I'm firing that die. This die is done. I'm never rolling this die again. I'm gonna roll this die with my left hand. Oh, it still sucks. I yeah. can't wait to see Casey go nerd Hulk on D and D. Any other final takeaways on these games, guys? No, I had a lot of fun with both of them. Um, I think they both bring a lot to the table. Um, and I want to just interrupt you for a second and just remind people that, like, you don't have a super heavy board game background. Like, you're in our group of friends that play board games, but, like, you're not the, like, heavily fantasy-involved D&D. Like, you were a jock growing up where Joey and I probably had much more similar, you know, nerds in the closet lives. I mean, yeah, that's that's a very fair <laughs> statement. I, You know, I've gotten into it a lot more over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, however long that we've been playing. My collection's starting to grow a little bit. And So are you saying you finally got cool? <laughs> Diversified, maybe, is a better word for it. Yeah, um, got cool. <laughs> got cool, bro. But, yeah, I mean, it's definitely... They're, they're fun games, um, especially for all different levels of players, I think. Um, the second one, you're going to need somebody to, to walk you through it. The first one, I think anybody who is just kind of getting into some of the more advanced games could pick up, learn pretty quickly, and have a good time with it. Yeah, they're fun games. Brenzi, you have closing thoughts? Yeah, I, I mean, I would recommend them to, to folks. And, and I mean, if I think it would be interesting if you have like a D&D group and have played through any of like the fifth edition any of the fifth edition campaign sets that that wizards of the coast puts out i i would recommend you pick up the board game version of that because a you get miniatures that would match that scenario which is which is really cool uh plus it's just another way to go through what i'm guessing is the main storyline of that but experience it with different characters in a much faster way so i could see that as being an interesting way into it uh, but also, if you don't have the desire or you just don't have the time to do a D&D campaign, I think these would fill in very nicely, especially the more recent versions of the game where there's been a little bit more added to them. Agreed. You summarized it very well, my friend. Games are fun. <laughs> Next month, we're moving off games. We're going to do a show. I'm so excited for this. We're doing a show on my favorite character on Venom. We're going to break down the new movie. Burns, we're going to a movie theater together. Wait, we are? Yes. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> you and me and Runquist, who started OIO with me. Like, we're going back to our roots to talk about Venom. You excited for that movie? Yeah. Casey, you love Blade Runner. Are you excited for Venom? <laughs> I, I am. I, I actually really like the first movie, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how they... Uh, I mean, we know the story of Venom and Carnage, but let's let's see how they bring it to the to the big screen. Yeah, I'm also curious if it's going to somehow tie into the MCU in any way, shape, or form, or if they're going to keep it as separated as possible. I mean, it's a Sony movie, so they have to keep it separated, right? Yep. Like I saw a leak that they like they're building towards something with Spider-Man, but like Sony doesn't have Spider-Man. They literally can't build towards Spider-Man. Spider-Man wasn't even referenced in the first movie, which I had yeah. a super hard like time accepting as a core principle of venom but unless that's part of like more recent deals and it can tie into that i think it is eventually going to because i actually i heard that they're somehow going to so disney i think is taking it over at some point in time because they're talking about like actually having a movie or something where all 
different iterations of Spider-Man. So the Tobey Maguire. Well, yeah, that'll uh, be out in uh, December. Yeah, where they're all kind of like going to be together in one universe. So you would think that, I mean, the the rights have to be getting mixed up here somewhere. I swear to God, if they bring back Topher Grace for that movie, Tom Holland may no longer be my (laughs) Spider-Man. Well, I mean, if the leaks are right, they are bringing back everybody that's played Spider-Man in that movie. But he played Venom. He was Venom in Spider-Man 3. What if it's both Venoms, then? Disgusting Venom. I I will bet, I don't know what we would bet, but I will bet that by the end of this movie, it somehow leads up to and ties into the Spider-Man movie that comes out later this year. I mean, now you just, like, toying with my emotions and my heart burns. Like, I want that so desperately to be true, but I, I just don't see it. I, I bet it happens. We're going to have to think of a wager for that. Okay. Oh, oh yeah, we're going to play a board game, too. We're going to play Marvel Champions, the living card game from Fantasy Flight for that show. It should be a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Outside is Overrated. Please review us on your favorite podcast platform and consider supporting our show on Patreon at patreon.com. And a quick shout-out to our two newest patrons. Thank you so much to Lance and Bridget Clark for both becoming $10 supporters on Patreon. I support. I appreciate it so much. For Joey at Hobbybox Burns and at Dr. Underscore Casey, I'm Tom Sidlogic at Tom Sidlogic OIO. We'll talk to you next month. Stand side, kids. Hello and welcome to Technical Ineptitude with Tom, <laughs> a podcast about <laughs> whatever I want. That was just for the outtakes. You need to step away for a sec? Mm-mm. Oh, I thought you were going to go somewhere. No, you said step away from the table. I was oh. just pretending oh. that we actually had to step away from this table, but we don't. <laughs> you can edit this out, though. Uh, never. <laughs> you told me to take it out. It has to stay now, dude. You have to edit it out of the Facebook Live, too. Oh. Yeah, because that's running now. We lost a viewer. God oh. dang it. Yeah, we lost the viewer. I think one counts me. <laughs> oh, really? I yeah, think it's so. like Twitch. Yeah. yeah, it's like Twitch. I'm watching you, Casey. <clears throat> That's a rattle if you want to put it on. Yeah. Yeah, my baby wears it on her wrist or her foot or something. Sometimes when I'm like working on OIO stuff, I put the bouncer right where you're sitting. So like I'm facing the computer, like tick tack, tick tack, and let it, let it, let it. And like baby's just, you know, bouncing in her finger back there. Be honest, you've worn this somewhere else. <laughs> no, that is. <laughs> I have not done anything inappropriate with any of my children's toys. Thank you very much. Phoenix. Come and get the rattle. <laughs> it's uh, it's amazing how each episode you uh, reveal someone else's secret move. Guernsey, you might be next, dude. It'll be news to me. I'm pretty sure it'll be the bat wing again. Hey, well, I mean, we've already covered it, but this is kind of Casey's thing, so we'll let him do it. Yeah, we'll let him do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, people are missing this pure gold. <laughs> We're going to move on from documentaries to our final topic, the board game Waterdeep. Temple of the Mad... It's not Temple. Dungeon Dungeon of the Mad Mage. Mage.
And, you know, usually we have the show notes. When we were all online, like, the show notes would be on the computer. And, like, I'd be looking at you guys and, like, paying attention to the show notes. And Joey usually goes in and fixes my typos because he knows I'm Ron freaking Burgundy over here. <laughs> and that whatever is written down is going to come out of my mouth. <laughs> huh, that's a good transition, too, and it's ruined. Anyways, we played another game, and it was fun. Let's all go home. 